0: Hello and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein book club in this episode i will look at if this goes on um which was published originally in 1940 in astounding it was published in two issues of astounding in in 1940 and it's since been republished as uh or in revolt in 2100 which collects his stories that that kind of make one novel length story about uh this theocratic government and the revolt against it it's part of the future history series Um, so how to look at this Um, actually I listened to an audiobook version which was based on the the later publication which was expanded it was kind of fleshed out a little bit Um, and then I, I actually printed out the original astounding so as I was reading I was like Witnessing the differences between the two texts. I don't want to get into that too much. Um, They're significantly different Um, But the heart of it is the same the story is essentially the same, but there's more explanation a little more um, Development some scenes are a little bit different. That's not a really big deal because what we're going to talk about here is the You know the heart of what the story is Um, now thematically there's parallels to uh, for Us the Living, because in For Us the Living, we saw a discussion of a period of American history in which the U.S. was taken over by uh, the Puritans. It was, it was like a Puritan revolt at time, and then there was like a revolution against that, and that's what led to the, the revised Constitution that people were enjoying at the time of the novel, That time the novel was taking place, which basically was a libertarian uh, social credit system but the, the libertarian part of it was a constitution that basically made it illegal for congress to pass any laws that Interferes with people's personal lives and that was a response to a puritan uprising. This is a much more developed um, Theocratic government that's being presented here now, um I'm i mean i'm kind of not sure how to start here. Um, it's It might take me actually a couple episodes here because it it really does almost work as a novel and and it's almost novel length it's it's probably almost as long as for us the living you know if we take the two parts together especially in this expanded version that we see in revolt in 2100. so i'm just going to take it easy and see how it how it goes and how much i have to say about this this novel really novella i guess or novel now that's going to be the case for several works we have coming up. There's a lot of examples in Heinlein's early career of works being kind of reworked and expanded. Uh, obviously, universe. All right, is is expanded into uh, Orphans of the Sky. But basically, this story is all from the point of view. It's, it's first person narration by John Lyle, who is a essentially like an army officer in in the center of this theocratic government. So he's raised fully within this. So he internalized its values for the most part, which are just Christian. He can't really see outside of it early on in the story. The capital is New Jerusalem. Um, And he runs into one of these virgins who serves the prophet. And basically they're they're, That's a harem, more or less. he doesn't really realise that. He's kind of super dumb. I any reader would figure that out right away when, you know, the the virgins one her name is J- Sister Judith talks about, oh, I'm finally chosen to serve the prophet. Um now the prophet is just a, a country bumpkin guy, but he became a dictator and and is running america that story is not fully explained we get a little hints of how that came about but it's um you know it doesn't matter so much because we're talking about the revolt against it and the people what the rebels were like what their strategy was what their thought process was and and how the system breaks down i suppose but um we all get it through this guy john lyle and he starts out we he's not seen that intelligent to us because he 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 obviously doesn't understand even the world around him because he's working in the capital he's like a guard in the capital and he doesn't even know what's going on in the capital and actually other people make fun of him other characters make fun of him for being so oblivious to that um, his kind of religious commitment to the cause you know and of course if you're raised in an area if you're raised in a in a world you you often don't second get you know you just assume that's true right it's like people who are raised christian just assume those things are true they don't really think about it unless they get some exposure from the outside so if you're in ensconced in this vision it is like the people in in universe right who don't realize they're on a generation ship because you know th- that knowledge got forgotten and then all they have around them is their sense perception right and all, all your sense perceptions reinforce these ideas of course you're going to think a certain way about it. So, um, so anyways, he meets this Judith. I'm kind of to run through the pot really quickly here. He meets this Judith and she goes to serve the prophet. And she also is kind of too stupid to realize what's involved. And she freaks out and she finds out she has to sleep with him. And this eventually leads her to seeking out help from John Lyle and This leads to um, them killing a spy for the prophet. John has to eventually flee and save her. And then he gets involved with the resistance. That's how he basically gets involved with the resistance is through her interactions, his interactions with um, Sister Judith. Eventually, um, they meet another sister, another one of these members of the harem, Sister Magdalene, who's a member of the resistance. It's called the Cabal. Uh, the movement, and then he gets recruited by the the movement, and that's mostly the first half of the novel, where we see how he gets the first issue, I guess, of the, of the publication in Astounding, where he he eventually gets captured himself during, uh, a, you know, an attempt to save Judith from her being captured by the by the state. He gets captured, he gets tortured, and he is eventually rescued for the cabal. And basically the cabal says like, you have to join us now because we've had like two bad military expeditions based on you. Uh, you know, we've invested all these resources into you and you're going to have to join. So he, didn't, he was really kind of forced into joining the cabal. He's not like an ideological convert. So that's an interesting point of view because we then have to see him become convinced of the rightness of the, of the cause. He's driven mostly by his love for the sister Judith, which is the first thing he has to come to terms with is that he loves someone he's forbidden by law, forbidden by his religion, forbidden by everything he's learned. He's forbidden to love her. And even his roommate, Jones, who's kind of the in, inside voice of, of kind of reason and moderation within the state, to even telling Lyle, like, you're a bit nuts here. <laughs> um, he tells him like, yeah, People are sleeping with the sisters all the time, just not before the, the Prophet gets them. But once the Prophet's done with them, they're just kind of part of his harem. And, and yeah, they, they they have all sorts of um, um, relations with the different people in the army or whatever. It's just, it's accepted. It's, it's part of what makes the system work is that flexibility in the system. Um, but he kind of educates Lyle on a kind of the stupidity of how seriously he takes these this, this religion and these beliefs. But anyways, uh, the second part of the story, um, which I suppose I'll get to a little bit, but I, I think I might wait until another episode to get into this, is more the resistance movement itself. And John eventually becomes like a cor- corporal or a colonel. I mean, I think it's a colonel in the cabal and he becomes integral in like planning and organizing the resistance. They, they use his military knowledge against the state he starts out as a spy and he has to do some does some spy activities and clandestine stuff posing as someone else for a while but he eventually takes a central role in in the revolution um so he's like second in command to the general and he has to do all this kind of managing of resources and things and eventually um math comes into it it's it's a hindline i don't know if it was maybe it was campbell saying like this needs more math You know, because there's definitely scenes where you can tell Heinlein saying this needs more sex and he puts that in. So I wonder if Campbell's saying, no, there has to be more math based. Uh, You need like computing when the revolution will be successful. So a lot of the cabal is doing is like, is Penny, uh, you know, bean counting on like how many people you lose for an assassination? How many, what's our percentage of victory? If we, if we achieve victory in the revolution, what's, what's the percentage chance we can sustain uh, success, right, long term. Um and that's kind of where the second half goes into. And it, there's a lot of interesting stuff here about the workings of the of the cabal, but it's it's very um it's not very romantic, I guess. It's very bureaucratic. It's very the nuts and bolts of state making, um, which I think you see some of that in the Moon is a Harsh Mistress too, where you know, actually the workings of the revolution are kind of presented in very mathematical logical terms and eventually the victory is just um an action scene at the end fulfilling what's already been kind of worked out on paper but um but that's it in the end of the story the prophets killed by the by the sisters so they don't actually have to kill the prophet i think they want to arrest him or whatever but um so this work kind of serves as a bit of a prelude to certainly The Moon is a Harsh Mistress or Highland's other stories of, of rebellion and resistance. Um, and I think it's maybe most interesting to us as a window into kind of a theocratic government taking over America. If you've read like uh, The Handmaid's Tale, you, you know this is a, something that people in North America are, have been worried about and concerned about and have, have written about. And in fact, when I was reading this, I thought, wow, Atwood must have like, Lifted some of these ideas from Heinlein, or I don't know if she really did, or if she admit she did, but you know, it's you know, a lot of it's there, right? The, like the sex slavery, just religion justifying a kind of a form of sex slavery um, uh, in this authoritarian theocratic government. Um but actually I think the house presented here is a little more interesting than even Atwood presents it because there's a lot more flexibility built into the system here where it's more about as long as people play their role like internal belief doesn't matter you know it's not it's so much about internalized it's not a nineteen eighty four kind of narrative where the state cares about changing you deep down in, like in your psychological level this is we see here is like this theocracy is run by fundamentalists but they somehow realize that most people aren't going to be like fundamentalist christians themselves and there's flex worked into the system like one example is like when you're being investigated for an auto de fe when they're they, they need an auto de fe someone has to be burned or punished you know you 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 admit to some lesser crimes, and then that's, that's your way out, right? That's the flex in the system. Yeah, you're going to be punished. You might be demoted. Something bad is going to happen to you, perhaps. But, you know, if they just want you to confess to something, they just need that for the system to work. It's like plea bargaining uh, in our system. If, you know, if we didn't have that and everyone was put on trial for every crime that every DA wanted to prosecute for, the courts would never get anything done and that actually might be a good thing. I don't know. But, um, but plea bargain, there's like plea bargaining work into the system in a way. And it's, it's all done with a confessional and and things like that. So it's, Highline put some thought into this and I was actually kind of impressed by, by what he's put together here. So I guess for me, the, the most interesting thing about the first part of the story is the question of like how, Revolutions are made or how movement cultures are made and how radicals are made like I guess how we might normally think about this is That there's a a, I want to say like there's an ideology that comes first So someone gets converted by the ideas of a movement and then Join up with the movement and struggle for it and then solidarity sort of comes first um, Kind of as an intellectual exercise but that's not what Heinlein does here. And I don't think it's what he does in some of the other Heinlein stories I've read that deal with the question of of revolt. Um, maybe with that functionalism stuff in the roads must roll, there's maybe the suggestion that like the idea came first and then people embraced it. But even that, I guess, comes out of a process of work and an experience one has like in the workplace, in, you know, as an engineer or a technician. Here John Lyles interesting because he is a true believer beginning. On. now, it's he's not the true believer in the sense. He's thought much about it. He just is a true believer because that's the world. He's in and that's the, the culture around him and that's just how it is. He can't imagine an alternative, but he's kind of forced in through other events to become part of the movement culture and solidarity then comes through the struggle. Right, through the activities he's embraced with, through the friendship and the love he has for Sister Judith at first. And then when that's not even possible, eventually in the story, that door closes, that relationship with, with Sister Judith is closed because she ends up getting married to someone who's, who's more physically available for him, her, who's there, and he can actually support her. Um, so he kind of loses that. But his, it's, the, it's the solidarity with her first that leads to a struggle. And it's only later that he gets exposed to the ideology of the cabal. He's not actually that interested in it at all. Like in the whole first half of the story, there's almost no talk about what the cabal's about and what their beliefs are, except they're sort of against the government, against this theocratic government. It's only as we get deeper into the story that we learn about their sexual politics, their views on marriage, their views on psychology, their views on human nature, uh, their strategies. And all of that, right? That's, that's the end of the story. So I think that is one very interesting thing about this particular tale. And we're essentially told this explicitly at the beginning of chapter six, I had joined the cabal on impulse, more or less certainly under the stress of my newborn love for Judith and in the excitement of the events that came crowding over me as a result of meeting Judith, I had no time for calm consideration. I had known rationally that to join the cabal was to cut all my ties with my past life, but I had not realized it emotionally, deep down inside. What would it be like never again to wear the uniform of an officer and a gentleman? I had been proud to walk down the streets or to enter public places aware the eyes followed me and admired. End quote. So even there, there's acknowledgement of something he's losing, right? Something he liked about his old old existence, but it it was the love that drives him to the resistance. Now, maybe... That's not ideal way to recruit, but we're just looking at the window of one person. That's not how all people get there. They all get there their own ways, but it's not seemingly an ideological revolution that happens first. It's not someone's reading, reading a book, you know, they're not reading like Richard Dawkins and then suddenly realize, oh, the the great text tells me I must revolt against this theocracy. And it's nothing like that. It's just you live your life and you feel something's wrong. and But you continue to live your life but eventually when you're brought in a situation where solidarity forces you to act in camaraderie with others with self-sacrifice, you know, sacrifice oneself for others. That's how the revolution is made, right? And and that's what I like I kind of like the first half a little bit more than the second half because it is more about this theme of, of how one gets into into a movement. And the second part is a lot more about the workings of the movement and its philosophy. And it's, it's more, it's Heinlein being Heinlein in the second half. And this is Heinlein telling a story about a person who's put in a very uncomfortable position, but, but has to continue on despite that. Now, I've already talked a little bit about how this, the system, the theocracy we have is, has built-in flexibilities in it that, that allow it to be sustained. And I think that's True of any dictatorship, any authoritarian system, is going to can't like that's my problem. Part of my problem with this idea of totalitarianism in general, right? I think that comes out of the mind of someone like George Orwell or Hannah Arendt. I mean, even in like Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, you never had total control over every aspect of life. A state can't achieve that. That's just an impossibility to even imagine it. It's it's kind of Cold War propaganda that props up this idea that the Soviet Union was this thing that reached down into the minds of every person. And I think a lot of the scholarship on Soviet history in recent decades has kind of dis- dismembered that conception of what the Soviet Union was. But, um, but it's in there in, in the DNA of science fiction through people like Orwell, this idea that like, that's what the state's gonna do eventually. If you keep expanding state power, eventually it's gonna be down in at every atom of our being and it's unescapable then. It, it truly is impossible to escape, right? But systems that actually function, that actually work, do have these flexibilities work into, into them. If you're too rigid, it's gonna break down, right? You do have to have that give or take, and, and you, you know, whether it's a workplace or a classroom or a government or a bureaucracy or a court system or a justice system, if it becomes too black and white, right? It's gonna break. And so I think part of the strength of this theocracy is in that it realized that, you know, it's, it's got to give where it has to give. And especially for the believers, the people inside New Jerusalem, which is our window into this society, it has that. And, it, and it's later on, when we see a little bit more of the society, we see that it's out there too, right? Not everyone is, is entirely brainwashed by this system. So I think that's interesting. Now, as for the society itself, it's it's got the accoutrements of like medievalism. The prophet has uh, like the harem, but they're, they're like the sisters, the virgins um, well, they're virgins and their sisters later on, I suppose, um, after they serve him. But but the army is kind of constructed in a in a more like early modern or late medieval kind of way. The uniforms are really like late, late, late medieval, early modern kind of armored uh, stuff. Um, you have auto de fes and inquisition. So I think he's drawing from that period of time in some of the symbolism, right, of what a theocracy could look like in America and that I'm not sure quite works for me. I think wouldn't it wouldn't you expect more like Americanism Wouldn't you expect something more like the Puritan village. If a theocracy emerged in in the United States, maybe in that sense Atwood is closer to what it might actually look like in the United States. There's a there's a very European esque you know, like a European view of it, like with the armored uniforms and the uh, the use of something like the Inquisition. But that's fine, it's fine. It's um, it's a good story. Um, so in the next episode, I'm going to finish up my thoughts on if this goes on where I'll talk more about the movement itself, the cabal and its strategies and uh, how Lyle kind of works his way up into that institution. Because that's an interesting story, too. That's like the second half of his story is how he kind of leaves one institution and the second one, he rises up to become a major leader in the movement, rising to even higher heights. But the day to day workings of this resistance movement of state building of what's going to come later, this question of what's going to come later is explored in a lot of detail. Plus, it's in the second half we get the sexual politics of the novel, which are obviously going to be libertarian. And there's a really nice scene where um, where marriage and sexuality are explored. Now, if you've read for uh, for us the living, there's nothing going to be that much that new here, but the fact that he worked it in reminds us that it's very very much on his mind. So um, the sexual politics in the first half are. Just one of exploitation, I suppose, right? Of the prophet having all the women for himself in kind of a harem. That's obviously doesn't tell us much about the broader world or the, what the cabal thinks about sexuality. And we get more of that in the second half. So um, now I guess one last thing. The title, if this goes on. If what goes on? Um, I don't know where. It's in quotes if this goes on in the title. So I don't know if it's in the story i don't think it is so he's referencing something that i was too lazy to look up but uh, of course requiem is referencing literature too so i'll try to dig this up and and let you know what i think about it later but is what is going on in 1940 that he's worried is going to go on and lead to this i mean i guess in the 20s you had that kind of religious revivalism, right? Kind of the third great awakening of the 1920s, the growing urban rural divide. Uh, and if you look at where the prophet comes from, his name Scudder. He comes from a backcountry area, a rural area. And of course, that that is the center of religious revivalism in the early 20th century in America, especially in the 20s and into the 30s. So um, I think that's where it's coming from. It's just why would that kind of figure move to this kind of late medieval, early modern kind of iconography and imagery of what Christianity is, this kind of Catholic Reformation view almost of, of, of religion. Why don't we get a much more like American Protestant kind of vision? It's a, it's, it seems to be a, pro, a Protestant one, but that's not like the virgins and the sisters, the armor. It's more like Catholic Reformation, kind of imagery i think but again uh, i'll think about that a little bit more as i get into the next episode so that's going to be it for now um thanks for listening i'll see you next time as i finish up my thoughts on uh if this goes on